day I'm recording this, there are not quite two million apps available on the Apple iOS App Store. That's the App Store for iPhone and iPad devices primarily, though some measurements of this kind include apps for the Apple Watch as separate from their iPhone kin. And the numbers will get fuzzier in the near future, as Apple is in the midst of a change in their hardware-software setup, which will likely result in more crossover applications that work on both their Mac computers and their more portable iOS devices. Those caveats in mind, though, At the moment, there are somewhere between 1.8-ish and 1.96-ish million apps on the iOS App Store, and that compares to not quite 3 million, something like 2.87-ish million, to be more precise, apps that are available in the Google Play App Store, the one that is used by Android devices. Despite, or perhaps in some ways because of, that app availability gap, Apple makes quite a bit more money from their App Store than Google does. After a pandemic-attributed bump in the third quarter of 2020, Apple is expected to make about $19 billion from their App Store this year, which is up 31% from 2019, when they made about $14.5 billion. Google Play, in contrast, only brought in about $10.3 billion, which isn't nothing, and is a more significant increase of 33.8% year-on-year, but still, about 50% more apps, but about 50% less income from those apps. That paints a pretty illustrative picture of the common narrative of the competition between these two options, namely that Apple's App Store is the far more lucrative one while Google's is the more expansive in terms of both users and the number of available apps, but also the less important one in general, in terms of earning money from an app that you might build, at least. Which is interesting, in part because Apple didn't originally intend to allow anyone else to make apps for their devices. Steve Jobs, who was the CEO of the company in 2007 when the first iPhone was released, he didn't want to tarnish Apple's image with second-rate apps made by God knows who, so he encouraged independent developers who wanted to make software for these snazzy new devices to build web applications for the Safari web browser that was baked into iPhones instead. Developers did not like this idea at all, as it would be limiting, but would also put them at a significant disadvantage against Apple's in-house offerings, relegating them to the status of second-class app citizens. And pushback from these developers and the widespread use of jailbreak software, which were not approved by Apple, but which allowed users of these early iPhones to install unapproved third-party software, led to the release of an official software developer kit in early 2008, which allowed developers to create their own official Apple-approved App Store downloadable iPhone apps. The iPhone App Store was opened to the public in July of 2008 and was preloaded on the iPhone 3G 
the first iPhone to offer support for the then-still-newfangled 3G mobile standard, which allowed users of phones and smartphones to engage with more types of media than was previously possible or feasible due to the larger bandwidth potential that it supplied. In 2009, Apple augmented its App Store offerings by making in-app purchases a thing which allowed developers to make their apps free, but with paid upgrades, once a user had downloaded it onto their device. This option made the freemium model very popular, and substantially increased the revenue that app makers were earning, and also, as a direct consequence, the revenue that Apple was pulling in from these apps. Apple's business model for their app store, pretty much since the beginning, has been to take a cut of all business that occurs on their platforms through this store. In practice, that typically means shaving 30% off the top of whatever is paid through the store or via these in-app purchases, which is often only a fraction of a dollar at a time, or maybe a few bucks if they're lucky. But when you have that much activity on a platform, billions of transactions a year, that adds up. As we can clearly see from that aforementioned $19 billion 2020 revenue figure. While this approach to app monetization has been incredibly lucrative for some, birthing an entire new industry within the software world and outpacing many other far older and mature segments of that industry, not everyone is a big fan of this approach or this business model. There have been outcries from the very beginning, for instance, from those who wished to have more powers within the iOS operating system, because Apple has built what's often called a walled garden, rather than a more open and flexible system, which allows Apple to retain far more control over which apps can do what within iOS, and as a consequence, what sorts of apps are even a possibility. They also retain a great deal of control over exposure for apps within the iOS community because they control the storefront and the pricing, which means they can pre-install their own Apple-made apps on devices and put them at the top of search results within the App Store, which makes it a lot less likely that folks will seek out alternatives from other developers and find them within the App Store if they do. The pricing angle of these complaints is a little more pernicious, but potentially just as impactful. If you're Apple, you don't have to pay 30% of your app-related revenue to Apple. Or if you did, it would just be a wash, because it would start and end at the same place. If you're another app developer, though, that 30% share for Apple has to be baked into your business model, because it's a reality of operating within the App Store and ecosystem. Some developers call it the Apple tax because it works in a similar way as a government-mandated tax. That pseudo-tax means that if a third-party developer wants to make an app that competes with an Apple-made app, that third-party developer has to either price their offering higher because they have to make 30% more than Apple on it to account for that fee, or they have to be a lot more efficient which in some cases means providing an inferior service for the same price. That 30% then, while sensical to some because of the services Apple provides in keeping the App Store relatively free of malicious applications and relatively friendly and easy to navigate for those using it, looks like a massive barrier to operation and innovation 
to others. What I'd like to talk about today is a significant pushback effort against the so-called Apple tax that has existed in various forms over the past few years, but which exploded in 2020, and why 2021 might be the year that developers finally have a viable alternative to the iOS App Store on Apple-made devices, and an alternative that Steve Jobs might have even appreciated even if today's Apple leadership may not. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from VentureBeat, and it's entitled, GeForce Now Debuts on iOS via the Web with Fortnite Coming. GeForce Now is a cloud video game service owned and operated by NVIDIA, which is a U.S. tech company that is best known for its graphic processing units, or GPUs, and for its system-on-a-chip units, or SOCs, both of which are used extensively throughout the technology world. The former, primarily in video game consoles and high-end computers, and the latter for all sorts of mobile devices, including the interactive dashboards on some Tesla and Audi automobile models, and the popular Switch portable video gaming console made by Nintendo. NVIDIA also makes their own line of consumer-facing products, including the Shield line of gaming and media devices and their consumer-grade GPU boards, which bear the same GeForce moniker as their cloud service. The GeForce Now service, then, has some credibility behind it because it's made and operated by a company that is heavily involved across the video gaming industry. And that's part of why they've been able to get over 5 million users to pay them for a service that, while functional, is by most accounts, like competing cloud gaming services, still not fully baked. It's usable, but generally not as frictionless as playing on a console or a nice gaming-optimized computer. That said, this is arguably not entirely their fault as cloud gaming in general is plagued by issues related to internet connectivity as much as or more than issues stemming from the companies providing said services. Which makes sense, because cloud gaming typically involves connecting a device to a bunch of powerful computers elsewhere, maybe a very distant elsewhere, and using your device as normal but having every button-push command and subsequent on-screen behavior jump back and forth between you and that distant warehouse full of processors. Even operating at full tilt with the might of a supercomputer processing the graphics and such, it still takes fractions of a second for the resultant data telling your device's screen what happens so it knows what graphical elements to display to move from point A to point B. Thus, even the highest rated of these services tends to suffer under high-octane, fast-paced gaming conditions, and perhaps especially fast-paced multiplayer gaming conditions, because then fewer, relatively low-powered computations can be relegated to your device's internal hardware, so there's even more back-and-forth required. Five million people being willing to pay for this sort of imperfect setup, then, says something about the quality of the product. 
That's a high number for the still somewhat niche facet of the larger gaming world. The story here is that GeForce Now, which launched as a beta in 2013, deployed its own multi-platform client for Windows and Mac computers in 2017, and has since expanded to Android devices, its own Shield devices, and Chromebook devices, will soon be available on iOS devices through the Safari web browser as well and is in fact already available in its beta pre-official release incarnation through that browser. GeForce is joined by other companies, primarily but not exclusively gaming companies, in its attempt to bypass Apple's iOS app store by refocusing on a web-based product, meaning that they can make it available in the browser for anyone who can access the web. And thus, folks who want to play more games on these other companies' gaming app stores on their Apple devices will just use the web instead of the official Apple app store to do so. The other companies attempting this same kind of meandering app store bypass, by the way, are also quite significant players in this space. Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, via their respective Stadia, Project X Cloud, and Luna cloud gaming platforms, are all building, intending to build, or in the beta stage of having launched their own web-optimized app store alternatives, focused on selling cloud-playable games to users on Apple and other devices. Users who were previously either inaccessible through these devices because of limitations placed on such games in the official App Store for both Apple and Android devices, or inaccessible because Apple's 30% cut of all sales within the official App Store made the business model for such games unworkable for the companies operating these platforms. And that same 30% applies to the Android Store. So it wouldn't be sustainable for them to cut Apple in for that much if they wanted these services to be profitable. That's part of the argument, anyway. Browser-based games have been available in various forms, more or less since the beginning of the web, but the sophistication of such games has ebbed and flowed based on the standards, programming languages, media delivery systems, and other such infrastructure available and common at the time. Flash, for instance, sparked something of a renaissance for browser-based games because of the level of interactivity it allowed, but it was also kind of a privacy and security nightmare and was eventually banished from most browsers after JavaScript and JavaScript-related languages became more powerful and proved themselves more useful for most mobile-based applications, especially those used on smartphones and tablets. Other projects and protocols have popped up over the years, and there's a lot you can do with the still relatively simple tools available in most modern browsers. But those capabilities are especially limited in terms of real-time and video communication compared to what's possible using a separate app. In other words, the things that apps and other sorts of software are great at, the web is only just barely sort of capable of doing in most cases. And some things that are technically possible within browsers require so much effort by the device in question and so much data from the internet that they aren't really practically doable in anything but the most pre-planned optimal lab settings, as opposed to being functional within the real world. 
there's a relatively new open source project called WebRTC that may bring an end to that state of affairs, however, at least in terms of some of the barriers developers of games, and especially higher-end games, face when trying to build products for the web. WebRTC, short for Web Real-Time Communication, started out as an open-source project within Google after the company acquired a bundle of patents related to video and audio codecs and transmission techniques. This project was submitted to the IETF and W3C, the Internet Engineering Task Force and World Wide Web Consortium, respectively, as these are two of the organizations that decide which protocols and APIs become baked into future browsers and how the associated languages and infrastructure change over time as a result. This standard was first applied in 2011, and two years later in 2013, the first cross-browser video call took place, followed by the first cross-browser data transfer in 2014. If you've ever wondered why all of a sudden it seems like more companies and social networks have video chat services built right inside the browser rather than requiring the download of a separate piece of software like Zoom or Skype, WebRTC is the answer. It set the standards for the web browser to be able to utilize a device's camera and microphone to send and receive real-time video, voice, and data including things like screen sharing between devices. This standard also provides the missing framework for the App Store-like functionality cloud gaming companies require to bypass Apple's official App Store and make their own, completely within the browser, without having to sacrifice too much functionality in the trade-off. This is an especially important development at a moment in which Apple has been scuffling with a variety of software companies over their 30% cut of App Store transactions. The gaming company Epic, maker of the incredibly popular Fortnite multiplayer game in particular, has been locked in a standoff with Apple for months, publicly criticizing what they call the Apple tax and going behind Apple's back to update their app, changing the payment setup in such a way that Apple could not stop them from doing it but in a way that was also against App Store policy. As a consequence, Apple dropped Fortnite from the App Store, and they threatened to do the same with other apps built atop technologies made and licensed by Epic. What the aforementioned VentureBeat article says, then, is that in addition to GeForce Now becoming available to iPhone and iPad users via this asymmetrical web-based method, They would also be bringing Fortnite back to these devices through this mechanism and in such a way that Apple does not get any share of the revenue. As of the day I'm recording this, Fortnite's addition to this service has been announced, but they're still working on the peculiarities of the touch-based system used in browser. I mentioned before that WebRTC and other modern standards have allowed browsers to catch up with the functionality of separate software in many regards, but not all regards. And this is one of those not-quite-there-yet categories. In some cases, for some types of input, there are fewer and less sensitive levers available to pull, and thus clever workarounds are required to build these web-based apps on par with their App Store-based kin. That said, 
The promise of this approach for many types of games and the ability to use this method to bypass Apple's App Store tax has many gaming platforms and developers hopping on board, with all sorts of deals being made between the entities making the browser-based investments and platforms and those with games and other sorts of software that want to sell them through these channels. This collection of technologies is interesting unto itself, because it potentially allows folks with even fairly weak, cheap devices, like Chromebook laptops, to play high-end games that would typically require a $500 console to play at a reasonable standard of quality. The possibilities of cloud computing applied to gaming, then, is itself quite the story. But the fact that the web as a communication channel is far more open than other walled garden types of channels, like single company owned and operated app stores, that is also a story here. Consider what this might mean for Apple, a company that is in an age in which the smartphone market is more or less saturated, especially on the higher end where they tend to apply more of their effort. They are a company increasingly reliant on service-based fees to keep their books balanced and growing. It's unlikely that any company can grow forever, and despite years of impressive consistent growth, it could be that changes in the hardware consumption market, paired with an alternative option to the previously necessary official app store, could choke off some of the newly important revenue streams at a moment in which it would be most inconvenient for their numbers. Because there are so many, and in particular so many large entities investing in this space, all at once, too, there's a good chance that it won't be a fly-by-night operation that is too rife with frictions for anyone to actually try. Even though, especially at first, it will almost certainly take a few more steps to buy and play a game bought through an unofficial app store, on an Apple device. And even though there are still countless flaws within the cloud gaming space as a whole, including those introduced by having to present those games via a web browser rather than a private app, with time, that process and those frictions will likely be smoothed out and shortcuts will be implemented and become more familiar if indeed the web continues to evolve in a way that is favorable for this type of real-time transmission, enabling more and more convenient interaction with cloud-based components and with other people using other devices. There are already quite a few progressive web apps, which are basically software-like applications that run in browsers, available ranging from audio editors and recording interfaces to games and social networks and spreadsheet-focused office tools. These web-based applications are becoming more powerful and intuitive, and though still clunky in some regards, because they're generally built to run on essentially any device, and any sized screen, any operating system, and a slew of different modern browsers, that versatility may prove a more compelling offering than the far more specific and thus limited offerings that we typically think of when we think about software today. There's still quite a lot of work to be done, if this is to be the case, of course, and we're at the beginning of the beginning of the very early stages of deployment for these sorts of apps, so it could be that all of their potential is actually for naught because of some unforeseen but ultimately vital flaw. Perhaps something security-related, 
as concerns are already being aired about the potential for WebRTC-enabled browsers to compromise the privacy of users utilizing VPNs because they can expose the true, rather than the faked, IP address of a user without that user realizing it, or perhaps because of something related to the umbilical the internet becomes when a huge chunk of your processing is taking place elsewhere, rather than on your own device. As with any new technology that seems to be a big deal, in other words, it's possible that the obvious most popular use cases for WebRTC and similar technologies could end up being something else entirely, and it could be that tiny issues aggregate into massive problems that kneecap their potential in the high-end gaming space before it has a chance to demonstrate the upsides to a sustainable number of users. The book that I'd like to recommend today is actually one of the great courses. So I believe there's a video version. I listened to the audiobook version. There's probably a written version as well, but the audiobook version was solid. And the title of this book is Games People Play, Game Theory in Life, Business, and Beyond by Scott Stevens. Game theory is an interesting concept because it is a bit anachronistic in that its heyday was during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union in the late 20th century. But some elements of it still apply in seemingly incredibly mundane situations, and there are concepts that we take for granted within the world of communication, within the world of marketing and business, and within the world of estimating and probability that is actually derived from the larger body of game theory. And so rather than this being a course on how to be manipulative or how to fake out an enemy superpower, one of the most valuable aspects of game theory and the way that it's taught in this course, to me, is being able to watch for certain types of manipulations in others or coming from entities in our lives, and being able to do better estimation of things like probability, but also ascertaining things like information imbalances and how to deal with that, and how to come to the proper conclusion about how to behave, even when communication is, unfortunately, imperfect. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy in whatever form of Games People Play, Game Theory in Life, Business, and Beyond, by Scott Stevens. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to my new news-centric newsletter at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.